The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hey, John, how you doing? Hi, Glenn. Glenn Lowry here, The Glenn Show. Uh, we're sponsored by the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research in New York City. Ron John Paulson, senior fellow. Uh, I also teach at Brown University. John writes for the New York Times and he teaches at Columbia. And we talk every other week and we're back uh, for our biweekly conversation, which I'm looking forward to, John. Definitely. We're going to be joined in a few minutes by a young man from Minneapolis uh, called Shane Hashi, um, who is a blogger and an observer of the political and policing scene in Minneapolis, to talk to us about his perception of the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd and the uh, civil disturbances that ensued in Minneapolis uh, uh, after that, uh, prompted by the discussion that John and I have been having here um, over the last uh, couple of months uh, about uh, the documentary film, The Fall of Minneapolis, uh, which uh, depicts the trial of Derek Chauvin uh, from a police point of view and is very sympathetic to the uh, uh, Minneapolis uh, constabulary, um, and which is controversial. Um, so um, I had some uh, correspondence, uh, unprompted correspondence with Shane Hashi, who will be joining us momentarily. He's had some technical difficulty. Um, and I thought it might be uh, informative to the audience and also instructive to me and John to uh, have some colloquy with him. It's not the last uh, conversation that we're going to have about uh, the George Floyd, Derek Chauvin uh, drama. Uh, the attorney general of the state of Minneapolis, Keith Ellison, who oversaw the prosecution of Derek Chauvin, uh, has been in touch with us and has urged us to invite him on the show so he can talk about the uh, issues that are raised by the killing of George Floyd and the conviction of Derek Chauvin uh, from his own point of view. Uh, he shared with us his book, Breaking the Wheel, is the title, and then there's a subtitle about uh, finding a solution for police violence. I'm sorry, I don't remember the subtitle exactly, but it's to that effect, and it chronicles his oversight of the trial of Derek Chauvin uh, in uh, Minneapolis um, in 2021. Uh, so uh, we're going to read his book, John. Yes. I know um, it's a heavy ask. I know it's a heavy ask. <laughs> do you know that he thinks, I don't know why he gets up my nose so much, but he thinks I'm a conservative Republican. We had an exchange this week where it was clear through omission that he thinks I voted for John McCain. And what that means is that he doesn't know me. He doesn't listen to us. He doesn't follow. He doesn't read us. And yet has the nerve to take on that attitude. It's just, it's so, it's so dismissive. Anybody who doesn't think like ta Coates is just, you, know, you don't even have to bother. It must be that they're just this card-carrying conservative Republican water carrier for the right. 
I don't like that at all. How dare somebody in his position, how dare you address me these days and misread me to that extent? It's not that I'm any great thing. It's just that it's insulting. It would be well, like I missed it. I missed in the correspondence where he called you a conservative Republican, John. What are you talking about? Well, for one thing, he said, I don't know what you are. Like, it's, what's interesting is, suppose I had certain assumptions about him as a black Muslim. And, you know, they were kind of there between the lines and I hadn't bothered to do my homework. It's disrespectful, frankly. You know, he, so he should this, know what I am. He thinks we're both conservative, card-carrying, Republican people. I don't know where you put yourself, but I am very vocal. Well, uh, I'm not a Republican. I'm an independent. I am a conservative uh, in many respects, both from economic policy point of view and from a cultural point of view. So I call myself a conservative in the subtitle of my forthcoming memoir, uh, Late Admissions, Confessions of a Black Conservative. So if he were to call me a conservative, he'd only be using my own words against me. But he did say that he was an economics undergrad in the 1980s and as an African-American was well aware of the work of that famous black economist called Glenn Lowry. So I can't think but that he has some, some respect, even if he doesn't agree uh, uh, with uh, everything that I have to say. Um, but uh, come on, I mean, he's, he's Keith Ellison. He is a, a, a Democrat. He's a party man. He's, he's a, a left of center guy. And, you know, there are a lot of such people in the world, John, that you let them get under your skin. There's something about him in particular. It's just, you know, the what he thinks of me reminds me of what people thought of me in 2004 when I was with the Manhattan Institute and they would see me on C-SPAN in a suit saying certain things. I have made many, many statements since then. I have made my positions clear. I've probably written hundreds of articles. Most people know now that I'm not that McCain, Clarence Thomas character. I'm in the middle. As I say, I'm a cranky liberal. Most people who give a damn about me at this point know that. It's gotten out there. Then here comes this person who's just up, oh, conservative Republican. Yep, there they are. I don't like it. I just, I, I find it, it's disrespectful at this point. I just, I would never read him in such a sloppy way. I do my homework before I wrote him. It's just, okay. It's just, but, but you are willing to talk with him uh, should he accept our invitation forthcoming yes. to, uh, to come on the show and talk about the, the issues. Yes, and I'll behave. Uh, yes. Okay, John, I'm counting on that, man. I'm counting on that. Uh, so what else is going on? We're waiting for uh, Shane Hashi to join us. He's had some technical difficulties. He's the young man, a blogger, and observer of politics and policing issues in Minneapolis. Uh, he's a self-described conservative. I, I took a moment to look at his uh, Twitter feed and, um, you know, he, he's perfectly reasonable, conservative uh, observer of the scene in Minneapolis. And uh, we're going to hear from him, but it won't be the last word on this. Are you uh, struck, John, by how much attention our discussion of the fall of Minneapolis, the documentary, and the killing of George Floyd and the conviction of Derek Chauvin, the, the political events that followed, uh, uh, how much attention that that has gotten, how much, you know, energy has been generated in commentary and so forth about it. I've been very pleased by it because I think that we provided a service. And even if it turns out that the documentary was all wrong, given how very, very often the story we're told about black guys being killed by cops is a hoax, we had every right to at least nose into 
that documentary and see if it was yet another example. I, I have no apology for that. And yeah, I think that there has been an intelligent discussion of the issue. And that doesn't mean that the old account has been anything like dismissed. But frankly, the jury still seems to be out. Balco apparently is not perfect. There are intelligent people who have issues with his particular points against Coleman. This is, let me just tell the audience, Bradley Balco, uh, a journalist who covers policing and crime issues in urban America, formerly of the Washington Post. And now, I think an independent journalist, he has a substack and so on, and who weighed in uh, critical of the fall of Minneapolis, the documentary, uh, and critical of some of the commentary, yours and mine included, Coleman Hughes's uh, included, uh, about the case that seemed even mildly sympathetic to uh, Derek Chauvin, the police officer who was convicted of murder and sentenced to over 20 years in prison as a consequence of uh, the killing of his uh, knee on the neck, so to speak, of George Floyd. Um, so you're happy with the, with the kind of, first of all, you saying we had every right to both view the film and to talk about it and to oh, bring yeah, it definitely. to the attention of other people. I'm really, I'm really glad. I mean, not happy because it's a tragic event, but I am really gratified to see the country or, you know, the chattering classes or people who like social media having a real discussion about it because we've been encouraged to treat it as basically scripture. There's one account of what happened as if he was Jesus on the cross. And if you have anything else to say about it, you deserve to be chased off of the planet. That won't do, even with something like George Floyd. And I'm really glad that we have gotten a discussion going. And the discussion might come down to being essentially the way people felt about it in 2020. But at least we got to talk about the issues. And so, yeah, it's not a pleasant discussion, but I think that, I think that we happen to be in a place where we lent service. And I have been interested to see the discussion going on about that tragic case. How do you feel about it? Well, I don't apologize for having the uh, discussion about the film and for having the filmmakers come on and to question them about their making of the film and in so doing to, in effect, promote the film that is cause it to be seen probably by more people than it otherwise would have been seen by. Uh, because I think it raises a lot of points, not only the ones that have fallen into contention in the disputes that Radley Balco has been having with the film, to wit, that the way in which the film uh, portrayed the testimony of personnel in the police department and the governing structures of Minneapolis about the technique of restraint that Derek Chauvin was using when he had his knee on George Floyd's neck, whether or not that was kosher, whether or not uh, uh, Chauvin was uh, acting in conformity with the uh, regulations about how that police department wants its officers to restrain suspects. Um, the uh, film strongly suggests that he was. Uh, Balco strongly argues, and to my mind, relatively convincingly, that he was not. But the whole issue is rather technical, and you wouldn't have expected us to be on top of it as uh, lay people who just came to the film. That's uh, true. You know, de novo. Uh, but the film depicts a lot of stuff. Uh, it depicts the demoralization of that police department and the burning to the ground of that third precinct police station. It depicts the um, consequences for the city of Minneapolis. And this is what I want to discuss with our uh, guest, if he comes back, Shane Hashi, 
consequences for the city of, Man of Minneapolis uh, in the aftermath of uh, the rioting and uh, uh, calls for the defunding of police and uh, widespread uh, contempt for police uh, in the populace that was uh, uh, fostered uh, by the uh, politics and the narrative around uh, Derek Chauvin's uh, murder. I think we have to say that because he's been convicted of murder of George Floyd. Um, the, uh, and it raises questions about uh, it, whether or not uh, Derek Chauvin got a fair trial. Should the venue have been changed uh, because of the uh, concerns that people in the city might have had about further civil unrest should the jury come to the wrong conclusion? Should the jury have been sequestered? Various uh, uh, rulings that the judge issued about what kind of evidence would be admitted and so forth. Uh, you can ask whether or not Derek Chauvin got a fair trial. The film raises that question in a way that I think is provocative and, and you know, to some degree persuasive that Derek Chauvin got, was railroaded up there. Um, so the issue is really important, and I'm glad that we engaged it. I do wish, I do wish that I had been uh, better informed about the the case at hand, maybe some familiarity with the trial transcript prior to interviewing people who had made a film about the trial would have been a good expenditure of my time. And I confess uh, here and have gotten some not not small amount of uh, feed blowback because of it that I think my judgment lapsed. I'll speak for myself in that. Um, I, I wanted a counter narrative to the stock narrative about the quote murder of George Floyd close quote, and uh, I was I was very unhappy with the uh, the politics of uh, anti police uh, animus and um, uh, the lionization of uh, the victim in this case George Floyd as an iconic figure representative of the aspirations and struggles of African Americans in the country. I, resisted that whole narrative. And I think I let that cloud my judgment or take my guard down a little bit in the way I reacted to the film. I acknowledge that. And I've got no end of, I got some, some people have said, Hey, Glenn, good for you. You're able to be self-critical. I'm glad you have that amount of awareness. But a lot of people have said, man, stand your ground. Bradley, Bradley Balco is no mouth is no prayer book either. And, uh, you know, I was happy to hear you uh, give some credence to the thing. And now you're, you're trying to take back. You give with one hand, you take back with the other. Equivocation. Uh, you got to have the courage of your convictions, kind of thing like that. And I'm, I'm listening to all of that and taking it on board. All of these are issues that deserve actual discussion. And with Floyd, you know, it's been, it's been, it's become something so iconic, something so totemic that actual discussion has been rare. So it's been really interesting to see it. I haven't read the third Radley Balco piece. Um, that's yeah. one work I haven't done yet, but I intend to. And what if, yeah, go ahead. We'll, we'll see where this all goes. But yeah, in general, it's just that there's more than most people know. I don't think that most people were aware, unless you were kind of a junkie, a terrible choice of words, unless you're a real obsessive about the case. I don't think most people knew how much Floyd was resisting arrest. For example, because, you know, you have to have seen all of that footage and none of that justifies what happened to him. But it's part of the story. I think people still don't know that Tony Timpa, a white guy, underwent something very, very similar and had been killed just a few years before. That's something that one 
needs to know when one thinks about George Floyd and supposes that it happened because he was black. There's just more than a t-shirt on this. And I'm not sure that's gotten into the general discourse. And the general discourse is is not going to say that George Floyd deserved to die. I, I doubt that it would say that Chauvin should have walked. That's not the issue. But the way we've been encouraged to process it has frankly been somewhat pious and unintelligent. And the whole cop killing issue was too important for that to pass. So that's how I, I feel about it. So we are um, committing ourselves to inviting uh, Attorney General Keith Ellison onto the show, that is the Glenn Show with John McWhorter, to talk about all of this. That's going to be confrontational, John. I won't let it be confrontational. Um, I. I maybe it's because I'm getting a little older. Maybe it's because I'm having a very busy semester, but I bridle at the dismissiveness and and formulaic respect. And um, there's just something about him. And I'll but I'll get past it. And I don't think it's going to be confrontational. Do you want it to be confrontational? I hesitate because I think I know what the right answer is. The right answer is no, I don't want it to be confrontational. And I think I know what I really think, which is, in a way, let's take the gloves off and have it out. Now, have it out about what? Not so much about whether or not the legal proceeding that ensued after the killing of George Floyd uh, was an injustice, even though I think all things considered, Derek Chauvin was railroaded. I, I, I think the, you know, neg- negligent a bus driver who was texting on his phone when someone steps off the curb and he runs over the person and kills them, that person should be punished. 20 years. And the question of whether there was reasonable doubt, all things considered about, given Floyd's condition and so on, about whether or not he was murdered by Derek Chauvin. Those things are certainly plausible in my mind. Um, what was your question again? Well, just well, I think the, the issue was: Do you want it to be? Oh, do I want it to be confrontational? The aftermath. First of all, this narrative: Black people. It's open season on black. That's Benjamin Crump's book: Open season on black people. The police are out to get us. It's a your your quality of your life has been significantly undermined by the racist police who are preying on black people at every turn, I think is a false narrative. Um, I do the, too. Uh, calling people into the streets, um, Maxine Waters standing in Minneapolis and call, telling a crowd that uh, we won't take it if we don't get the right verdict in so many words. It's not okay. The summer of 2020, that is the riots. The serial urban disturbances one after the other on the, what seemed to me, the least little pretext. What about that guy in um, uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin? Aaron Blake. Uh, it wasn't Aaron Blake. Jacob Blake. Jacob Blake, yes. Uh, is, uh, you know, he, he's uh, stealing his uh, girlfriend's car. He's kidnapping her children, who happen to be his children as well. Uh, he is uh, refusing a police directive. He has a knife in his hand. He turns with the knife in his hand. Uh, and then that becomes a cause celeb that uh, occasions uh, 
high-level politicians and activists into the streets demanding justice and cities are burning because of that. I'm, I'm dead set against that. If Keith Ellison is going to try to suggest to me that that's okay, then it's going to be an acrimonious exchange. I, we're, we're going to have to see, but that, that's another thing that bothers me is that, frankly, it's not unreasonable to suppose that he's going to have a certain tribalist, hard leftist sense that all of that was okay. And if that's how you feel, quite frankly, you're going from the gut, not from the head. In which case, how dare you write to us calling us gentlemen? How would he feel if I wrote him instead of, you know, A.G. Ellison or Mr. Ellison? Suppose I opened the email with, sir, and then said some polite things. John McWhorter, sir, how dare he call us gentlemen? It's, it's, it's snide. How is he so superior? That's, that's another thing that bothers me that I'm not, well, I'm not sure what he's, what he's backing sorry, that John. up with. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, if I could have heard the tone with which he said it, I might have more sympathy for your position. Being called a gentleman is not an insult in any way, shape, or form, but gentlemen. That kind of <laughs> sneering, sneering, like he's condescending to call us gentlemen because he doesn't really believe we're gentlemen at all. Yeah. I take offense to that. And that seems to be the way you read that word on the page. I did, because that's what he <laughs> means. He, he means, all right, I'm going to hold my breath and deal with these two chuckleheads. No, I don't. I don't. It's not fair. I, I think I, that I, I don't think he thinks we chuckle. This is interesting because my friend, uh, my friend Rajiv said he talks about in his book with Dan O'Flaherty about stereotypes. Mm-hmm. He talks about stereotypes about stereotypes. Right. So a stereotype is you have a generic read on somebody based on superficial information. You lump them in with everybody else who looks like that and you say they're that kind of person. And a stereotype about a stereotype is being a person who might be subjected to stereotyping, anticipating that the person you're dealing with is stereotyping you and then imputing to them motives that are perhaps inconsistent with their actual motives. That's your stereotype about their stereotype. And I think that's what you're doing. If he wrote an email to Cornell West and Henry Louis Gates. He wouldn't open it with gentlemen. He'd have something else. Because notice that if he's writing to them, he likes them, I'm sure. It would be too cold. It would be too distant. It would be too formal. Notice he would only write gentlemen if it's you and me or if it's Coleman and Thomas Chatterton Williams or something like that or Clarence Thomas where he would barely be able to manage the gentleman. But think about it. He wouldn't write it yeah. to people he liked. It's 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 a smack. It's a it's a it's a it's a what do people call it? It's a dig, I think. Shane, I want you to close if any other windows that you might have open at this uh, site. Yes, gentlemen, my computer seems to not <laughs> be working. I'm kind of stuck okay. having technical difficulties. Folks, All right, you, folks, I'm go- I've got to get this in right now. Yes, he just called us gentlemen. It's different. He's much, <laughs> much younger than us, and we just met. He's using it in the default way. Ellison is, no offense, Shane, but Ellison is basically our age peer and our experience peer. The gentleman in that case is different, and it becomes condescending. Continue. Spoken like a true linguist, my friend John McWhorter. All right, so we're going to uh, make this relatively brief direct interview of Shane Hashi, who is a blogger. And what do you do for a living there out there in Minneapolis, Shane? 
Oh, I've been in the corporate world for a long time doing training and sales, but I'm kind of taking a break to do blogging and writing and commenting about politics and race and culture. Uh, we invited Shane on the show because he reached out after um, the episodes in which John and I discussed the fall of Minneapolis. The Alpha News produced documentary about the killing of George Floyd and the trial of Derek Chauvin. Um, Shane uh, saw our discussions of that and uh, reached out uh, to give us his perspective on the larger implications of the Derek Chauvin, George Floyd controversy for the city of Minneapolis in particular, views about policing. Uh, Shane was present at a community meeting in which the rebuilding of the third precinct police station, which was burnt to the ground by uh, a riotous mob uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, the deliberations over the rebuilding of that police station uh, called forth commentary from the community that was alarming to him. And more generally, um, Shane has observed what's happened in that neighborhood where George Floyd died and more broadly in the city of Minneapolis in the aftermath of these events in 2020-2021. And uh, is, uh, as a resident of the city, concerned about that, and I thought it would be good to hear from him. Did I accurately describe you, Shane? That is correct, sir. Yes, thank you. Okay, so tell us what you think. So there's so much going on here. Um, I know there's a lot of discussion going on about... Uh, you know, the documentary and kind of the particularities and Bradley Belko's article and stuff like that. Uh, that's, that is important, but in a sense, that's not what, it, that's not what it is affecting people's lives uh, on a daily basis, right? So the aftermath of, of the decision, the aftermath of the trial uh, and the way the city and the state have decided to pursue or not pursue law enforcement uh, and, you know, punishment of crime, deterrence of crime has a, has a very serious impact here. It's, it's really degenerated and it's hard to convey how much civil society has declined since the summer uh, of George Floyd. So let me give you a little bit of background here. This meeting that I went to was in the third precinct. Now, Minneapolis is divided up by wards. So the police precincts don't exactly line up with the, you know, these council wards, but roughly uh, that area. And they had a, a, a meeting for people in the community to talk to three members of city council to discuss the plans to rebuild the third precinct police station. Now, as you can imagine, from the way politics and the discussion and discourse around these issues are, um, this was a kind of, this is a volatile meeting. This was not going to be uh, a police friendly meeting or even kind of a moderate both sides, pro law enforcement side, pro law and order side. And, you know, people who were concerned about the police. This was a very, um, a very, uh, a, a very anti-police, very anti-police, very emotional, very vitriolic, very upset, one sided type of meeting. Um, the meeting was mostly people getting up and talking to the city council um, and kind of going on various tirades about the police, uh, about how much they hate the police and how they don't want the police in Minneapolis um, and how terrible and racist they are. And there was not a single moment, there was not a single comment uh, or type of discussion about public safety in general, like how are we going to keep people safe here? And it's, it's hard to convey what life is like here now. 
and 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 what it's like. So one good example is while this meeting was taking place, when I left, I saw on Crime Watch Minneapolis, which tracks local crime, that a few blocks down one of the streets I drove down to park, somebody had gone down and slashed the tires on every car on that block. Um, there's just constantly things happening when you're in the city. Now, there's a lot to talk about. There's George Floyd Square and what things are like there. There's general crime and, and what happens in the city. But, um, you know, coming out of this meeting, I wasn't sure what to think because there's a sense where you could say, if that's how the people in Minneapolis feel, let them have it. You know, it was basically anti-police. It was no cops here. We don't want cops. And you can really tell that the only reason they're even allowing a police station to be built is because they're forced to. They have to do it. There's actually um, a part of the Minneapolis City Charter that uh, requires X number of funding uh, of police by the population of Minneapolis. Right. So when the citizens who were anti-police were talking to the city council members, the citizens were saying, you know, we're very uncomfortable with the idea of police here. That was the whole idea in much less polite language. And the city council members were saying, yes, yes, we're sorry. We have to have police here. The law compels us to from the city charter in the 60s. Um, but that's the type of environment it was. Now, when you live here, you know, you don't know. Does, is that how everyone in Minneapolis feels? Because well, I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask whether or not, I mean, you go to a community meeting, the people who go are self-selected group of the population. And once that meeting is underway and they start uh, tearing down the police, it would take a very, very, very brave person uh, to speak out and say, oh, no, let me defend the police here when they're outnumbered 20 to 1 and so on. So how do you know what the real sentiments uh, of the of the community are? I mean, did, did, wasn't there a city council election in which some defund the police uh, politicians got voted out in Minneapolis uh, when you have a secret ballot to, to protect your anonymity as you express your opinion, et cetera? Yeah, yeah, a couple of them. I mean, well, in, in the meeting that I was at, for example, one of the city council members who kind of ran the meeting uh, was is an open democratic socialist. Um, you, you, you know what their views on the police are. Uh, and, and she was the one who was kind of leading. She's very informed. She's very intelligent. And she was the one kind of leading the discussion from the city council uh, point of view. The city council is, you know, I have not followed that, you know, year by year super closely, but they are very radical. They're, they're as radical as you could get. So I don't know what happened with a couple of people who said defund the police, but overall, uh, having researched the, the current city council, now they're very radical. Um, I have an acquaintance who lives in that area where the third precinct was, and she's a she's a moderate, <clears throat> you know, she's a she's a Democrat, but she's a moderate Democrat. And she said, I care about public safety. I care about crime and violence. People are getting hurt. See, this is the thing. This is a very it's it's such a crazy topic because people are so emotional about it and they're so anti-police. But it causes real harm when you when you defund the police, when you draw the police down. OK, so we haven't defunded them, but we've gone from eight hundred and ninety two to five hundred and ten in the last few years. The city's size hasn't changed, so there's less ability to enforce the law. Also, there's um, kind of a lax, a lax view on crime and law enforcement from the district attorney, and people know that. Professor Lowry, right, as an economist, you know that anything you incentivize, you get more of. And 
we're incentivizing the bad people. They're not stupid. They're just bad. They know that they're going to be let out. They know there's not very many cops. They know the chances of getting caught. And even if they get caught, they're not going to get punished. So I don't know how people in Minneapolis feel. I don't know how many moderates there are. But my acquaintance told me, I mean, she's afraid She's afraid to go to these meetings. She's a Democrat. She votes the right way, 100% blue her whole life. But she's afraid to go to the meetings. So Minneapolis, but it could be that most people are radical and there's a small number of moderates or it's 50-50. But either way, it's the radicals that show up. Like it's the radicals that are in charge. They're the, they're the citizens that go to the meetings and they're the city council members who make the decisions. And I don't know where the moderates are if there are any. And it's difficult because this is all, this is all a cost in human suffering, right? So the, I'm a conservative. I'll just say that I'm a conservative Republican. So part of me says, let them have it. You, you, no police, go for it. Run the experiment. But that's kind of heartless, you know? Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> John, <laughs> you want to intervene here? So Shane, what's the solution? What, if you could wave a magic wand, what would happen right now? Good. 300 more cops back? More, yeah, well, more cops and more punishment. Um, you know, again, it's hard to, it's hard to convey. So it's you know, about the DA, too, then, right? It's very much about the DA. So um, I, because of my technical problems, I, I don't know. Were you guys talking about Keith Ellison or some other Ellison before I came on. No, we were talking about Keith Ellison, who's been in correspondence with us, who has both sent both of us a copy of his book, Breaking the Wheel, uh, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence, or a subtitle to that effect, and who has, in effect, volunteered to come on the show at some date in the future to be determined uh, and give his side of the argument. He's been engaging us from the very beginning. He wrote as soon as we uh, talked about the fall of Minneapolis and urged us to uh, broaden our uh, vision uh, about the problems in your city. So Shane, yeah, we're in communication with Keith Ellis. Shane, you smiled at the mention of his book. What was, what's the background of that smile? <laughs> yeah, I live in Minnesota, so I'm familiar with Keith Ellison. And um, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen his, um, his proud, his proud posing with the anti-fascist Antifa handbook. Um, Right around 2020, just before, I, I, I can't remember if it was before or after George Floyd, Keith Ellison is very radical. Um, he's a smart guy. You know, look, I'm not, so there's a lot of elements here, right? So I, I'm a conservative person, but I'm not, not partisan. You know, I don't dislike Democrats. I don't disrespect other people. Ellison's smart. He is smart. In fact, if you want, if you're a conservative and you want to say, what's the best? He's super eloquent. He's very impressive, but he's wrong and he's on the wrong side. It's like Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky is a brilliant man, but I know his bias. Keith Ellison is anti-cop. Um, you might have seen the video. This was in the fall of Minneapolis. Of his son, who now represents a district that he used to represent, saying we're going to defund the police. Right? That's Keith Ellison's son. They they are defund the police. They're anti-police, and so. I'm sure Keith Ellison can talk circles around anybody if you invited him on the show. He's a good writer, but he's biased. He's biased. I think he's wrong. He's anti-police. He's anti-law enforcement. I, I don't think he wants people to be safe, but he's a, he's a great speaker, you know. Uh, let me ask you this, uh, Shane. Can you put yourself in the shoes of a, 
typical audience member at that uh, police, anti-police meeting, a black person living in Minneapolis who remembers the killing, the murder of Philando Castile, uh, who, you know, maybe was on the scene uh, when uh, the life was choked out of George Floyd, or at least so it appeared to that observer. Somebody who's, uh, you know, been living in America the last 15, 20 years and uh, who's black and uh, who maybe has personal experiences with the police that are not so pleasant. Um, I'm asking you to kind of put yourself in the shoes of that person. And and could you have any sympathy whatsoever for their uh, attitudes about the police? And is any of this on the cops? I mean, is it all about the community being wrongheaded and misled or uh, is there any responsibility that the cops have for the fact that they are so hated by the residents of that city, by so many of the residents of that city. Yeah. Um, well, you know, you guys have talked a lot about this and um, the misperception of police brutality. I'm not, there's bad cops. There's bad cops. Um, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's even police departments around the country that are bad. I can't speak so directly about Minneapolis. You know, people have a lot of statistical misperceptions. Right. That's one of the things Coleman was talking about on Bill Maher recently. When you ask people how many unarmed black people are shot every year by the police, it's a multiple of a hundred or something you know, or a thousand. Excuse me. That's Coleman Hughes, the young African-American podcaster and uh, blogger and writer who has a book out, uh, The End of Race Politics, um, and who was on Bill Maher talking about these issues uh, recently. I just want the audience to know that. Go ahead, Shane. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I would assume there are some bad cops in Minneapolis. There, you know, there's, there's good and bad lawyers, cops, doctors, everybody, right? As far as a systemic issue, though, I don't know if the statistics bear that out. Um, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a lot to, uh, you could say, un, un, unpack here. Um, so I, I don't know if I mentioned this, but um, I'm not from the city, but I'm half black. Uh, my mom's black. My dad's white. And my grandma, my mom's mom, grew up in Minneapolis. She's from um, from Minneapolis. <clears throat> they, um, my, my grandma and her mom were domestic workers. Um, they're, they used to wash curtains for Jewish families. And then they moved kind of out to the country when they had my mom. Right. So my family is actually historically black from Minneapolis on that side. Right. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to state an opinion about the state of current Minneapolis policing, but I suspect that it's as statistical as most people think of it around the country right now. And from what I can tell, I spend a lot of time, so full disclosure, I don't live in Minneapolis proper. I live very close in the suburbs, um, but I'm in the city all the time. I have so many stories, you won't even believe the stories I can tell you of the stuff I've seen. Um, but what has affected, for example, my side of the family, the black side of my family, they left Minneapolis because it was so violent and there was so much the problems that we all know about. That's why the black side of my family raised, raised my mom in the country. So I, I don't think I'm, I want to get back to your question. I can't say statistically what's happening in Minneapolis, but I do not believe it to be as bad. I believe it's the Internet, social media, a, a historical, a statistical um, narrative, right? So there could be someone in that meeting. And also, if you think about, you said have sympathy for the people in that meeting. Like I said, I talked to people who disagree with me. I'm, I'm fine with that. They were very radical ideological people 
actually another good point since you asked about the con the, the content of the meeting. Most of them were older white people. Now there were black people and there were mixed people and Hispanic people there, but it was mostly um and again, this is a phenomenon you guys have talked about. It was mostly a bunch of very woke, uh, you know, older white people who have some, uh, you know, liberal guilt or whatever. So I, I wouldn't say the people in that meeting in particular are people who have had bad experiences with the police, but they're people who are just just hate the police because that's their political worldview. Now, there were there was a, a young, angry black man who was making a lot of these comments and. I don't know what his life experience is, but um, the way he was rambling, he sounded like your just typical Marxist who read it in a book. I, I don't think there was anyone at that meeting who's gotten beat up by the police. You know, again, I'm sure that that has happened to people, but I don't think that's the overwhelming concern that's causing people to to move in this direction. What is George Floyd Square? So that's where George Floyd was killed. <clears throat> And it is, it's, 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 it's crazy. I don't even know where to start. Uh, I'll start with my own experience. Um, I went to visit, so in the area where George Floyd was killed, they've made it into a shrine. Again, I know you guys have talked about this, this kind of um, religious, holy experience uh, of stuff like this. And it, it's a shrine. It's completely a shrine. Are we talking about an intersection, a city block, a neighborhood? What are we talking about? You're talking about several city blocks, actually. It happened in an intersection, and the intersection itself is, you know, walled off. It's 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 set up now. It didn't used to be. It's set up now, kind of like Columbus Circle with a, you know, with a raised fist. The last time I was there, there was they, there's a giant artistic raised fist that the city approved of and helped install. Um, but it, it was not a circle before. But it's an intersection where Cup Foods was. But what they did was they turned it into an autonomous zone after George Floyd was killed. So it was basically like Chaz. You know, Chaz in Seattle was a re this Seattle autonomous zone was a reaction and was part of the George Floyd riots across the country. Well, that's what they did here. Um, they meaning, meaning there are no police there. I mean, what, is, what does it mean an autonomous zone? Yeah. Okay. So now there are police, but no, for for around a year. There were no police. So I'll, I'll tell you, my, I have a friend who lived down the street from where George Floyd was killed. Um, I got constant firsthand reports of what was happening in that autonomous zone. So uh, it was he was killed at 38th in Chicago. I have a friend who lived a block down on 38th. So what happened was uh, the people, you know, the, the protesters turned it into autonomous zone of about five or six blocks. And... <clears throat> Again, I want to be generous, right? I don't want to be super partisan. When you think about what happened during that summer, we all know all the bad things that happened. But the way it took place, based on my friend's observations of, on across the street from Cup Foods, it was kind of like a, it was a day and night thing. There was a day shift and there was a night shift. So during the day, it was the peaceful protesters. So when they, when they say protests were mostly peaceful, these were the peaceful people. These were the concerned citizens. These are your average people, your working people in the neighborhood, your, you know, white couples with strollers, you know, protesting for justice. As soon as the sun went down, all hell broke loose. That was when, as soon as the sun went down, barricades went up, Antifa came out, thugs came out, uh, gangs came out. And so daytime, and like a news crew could go there and show a very respectable 
uh, portrait of people who were concerned about policing and racial justice. At night, things went nuts. And, and this went on for like a year. The police were told, the police told my friend, because he had a lot of stuff happen to him, they were not allowed to go in, in some vicinity. It was autonomous. So for about a year, it was autonomous from the police, which means things like a pregnant woman was shot in that area. And the police weren't able to go in and get her body. And my friend's neighbor had to drag her dead body about five blocks. So the police oh my God. and first responders, guys, it's, it's hard to believe there are things that happen in this time that will make you question the fabric of the civil society you live in. So when I, when I tell you I'm concerned and upset, it's because there are things that happen here that are really just unbelievable. Uh, another thing that happened to my friend, a couple other stories from the, the autonomous zone when police weren't allowed, which is about the first year. Um, there, was a, uh, there was a gas station on the corner across from Cup Foods that was routinely uh, looted. It was just kind of happening all the time. And my friend asked one of his neighbors, like, say, how are you concerned that the police don't come in here and there's looting all the time and people are shooting all the time? He said, oh, don't worry about it, man. The blood's got it. The blood's got it. The blood's controlled security. The blood's were keeping us safe and keeping that neighborhood safe in charge of security during that year of the autonomous zone. And the police, the police were not present. There's a shot spotter in the neighborhood. And from- I, ex Excuse me. The bloods, meaning the street gang, as in Crips and Bloods. That is correct, sir. That is okay. correct. Yeah. Go and ahead. On, on that note, you know, from the very first day, I mean, honestly, I, I, I've been thinking about this and I maybe someone should write a book about this. From the very first day, my friend was telling me what's happening. Oh, they're, they're protesting and there's peaceful protesting. Everyone's gathering and whatnot. In the middle of the afternoon, while everyone was gathering to protest, some guys started shooting at each other. You know, like a gun battle happened in the middle of daylight on the very first day of the protest. I'm not against protesting. I mean, if you're wrong, I disagree with you. Go ahead and protest. But it was a very bad situation. So it became autonomous fairly quickly. Um, and here's a crazy thing. This is just a wild story. There's a, there's a more concerning story I have to tell you. But one thing that happened was when they were robbing this gas station one night, they kind of got robbed over and over again, right? Because this lawlessness continued for months. And one night when they were robbing, people were going in, the Bloods, because they control security, there was a guy wearing a security jacket making sure people were wearing a mask when they went in to loot the Safeway gas station. <laughs> it's, so, it's, I mean, it's so hard. It's, it, it's just crazy. But on a more serious note, um, another night that summer, um, one of my friend's neighbors was very upset. About, imagine this is your neighborhood. And this is, this is why I'm upset. I mean, it's, it's hard to be calm when you know about these things, right? So these are people's lives. So my friend had a neighbor who was like, a 50-year-old white woman. She was mad. She was, she was, she was going to go tell these guys off and tell them where to go because they're ruining her neighborhood. My friend's like, hey, 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 no, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't think about it. After he did that, he turned around and someone put a gun in his chest and said, keys, boss. Gave him his keys, took his car, stole his car, gun in his chest. Who knows what could have happened, right? The next day, that person was found. They found the stolen car. The police 
A couple of cops chased that guy and crashed the car. As he was crashing the car and getting arrested, he backed the car up and tried to run over the police. Now, imagine you're a Minneapolis police officer and a criminal, you know, who's probably, you know, he's a black kid, probably a gangbanger, tries to run you over in a car a couple, a month after George Floyd happened. Are you going to shoot him? What are you going to do? So these are the situations that people were put in. So they just arrested that guy. Um, my friend went to get his car from the police impound lot, talked about pressing charges, and they said, oh, he's already out. The, um, the uh, protester bailout fund uh, bailed him out. And um, kind of speaking about Mary Moriarty, uh, you know, and, and the district attorney. She wasn't district attorney at the time. It was Mike Freeman. She's just gone further, uh, you know, against law enforcement. But, but basically, the the assistant prosecutor that he talked to said, "This guy's got a rap sheet a mile long, as you can imagine. He's a juvenile. He's been doing this forever. But you know, we we had to let him go. So that's how insane George Floyd Square was for the first year. After that, I start, I was not about to go investigate. Next year, 2021." I wanted to go see what George Floyd Square looks like. Well, the city had basically helped the protesters, um, you know, because they're they're on their side, and so they created these crazy um, speed bumps that were like out of the road. It was like they pushed the pavement together, so it, it was something like I'd never seen before. So if something happened and someone started chasing me, I really wouldn't be able to get out of it. They want to keep people out of that area, right? So. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. No, no. I want you to conclude. I mean, I yeah, think we've yeah. got we've got the general picture. Yeah. Take the police out of the uh, law enforcement business, and it's not a it's not a pretty picture of what ensues. But I, what I want to know is where where do we go from here? Um, where's the leadership in the city uh, of Minneapolis or the greater metropolitan area? What's next? Uh, how how are the police responding? Those who are still serving. Um, what lessons have been learned? Something like that. And, and then we can conclude because um, we're going to have to move on. For sure, for sure. Um, there's not a happy ending here. It's, it's only going in a, in, the, in a wrong direction. So I don't know what, you know, we would, you asked what I would do if I was in charge. I think we just need, we need a Giuliani type situation. Like, you know, work with before, um, the city council is very left-wing progressive. Um, the citizens who put are very left-wing progressive. Uh, our attorney general, our district attorney, and the suburbs are the same way. It's, it's a little less extreme. Uh, what does the future hold? I don't see anything in a positive direction. You know, what I tell people, uh, you know, because I'm a, I'm a conservative, I tell people in the Twin Cities, if you care about vote Republican locally. Vote for vote for vote for the you know Democrat senators or whatnot. Uh, yeah, you know senators. But you need to vote for people who care about law and order and public safety. And it's you know I don't want to be super partisan, but at this point right now, the Democrats they're they they don't care about law enforcement. They don't care about public safety. And so the citizens themselves would have to say, hey, we're going to vote in some hardcore Giuliani types or some Republicans who are kind of get tougher on crime locally. And if we don't do that, I, I don't see any, any bright side. I don't see any um, light in the tunnel or any way to get better. 
Okay. John, got anything? I I don't I don't think so. I think it's important that we heard how a lot of this went because um it's one thing to see, for example, the peaceful daytime protests with people with their strollers, et cetera. It's one thing that it's been it's it's been four years now. And we need to know what actually happens when you get rid of cops, because this visceral sense that cop equals wrong and that cop equals racist. We don't hear about the rest of the story. Nobody makes a movie about it. Nobody does a play about it. You do a play about what happened to George Floyd. So, yeah, I thank you for filling in this picture with eyewitness account. And, you know, to the extent that some people might call you biased, your bias is a proper one. And this needs to be heard without muffling, straight language. We needed to hear that. Yeah, I want the audience to know that um, we're aware of the fact that uh, Shane Hashi's view is not the only view of these matters. And we definitely will be hearing uh, from others, including, uh, we certainly hope, from uh, uh, Keith Ellison himself um, on this. But I think it's very important to listen uh, to voices like Shane's because he's not alone, I'm sure. And uh, for everyone like him who speaks out, there might be a hundred who are sitting in their kitchens and thinking, oh my God, what's happening to my city? And uh, they, you, Shane, are a part of the story too. So um, thanks for uh, giving us your time. Precisely. Yeah, thank you, Shane. For sure. Gentlemen, I would love to talk to you about affirmative action sometime too. I, I went to Columbia uh, during the early 2000s and then I went to Harvard Law School uh, when Obama was becoming, uh, you know, prominent. So that's a discussion I would love to have with you guys sometimes as well. Duly noted. We'll take it under advisement. We shall see. Thank you, guys. I will, I will close out on my phone here. I have no idea what it's going to do browser-wise. I'm so sorry for the technical problems. Okay. To the best take, of us. take care. There he goes. He's gone. <laughs> well, John, what do you make of that? necessary because to tell you the truth you know we all have bias it's inevitable the issue is what you do with bias and for somebody with a bias opposite to chains what they're going to say is that yeah there were some bad apples yeah some stuff happened but you know defunding the police is a worthwhile idea progressive ideas got around it was a revolution etc the person with that bias is going to say that well yeah some stuff happened Shane just showed us that it wasn't just well yeah some stuff it was an utter catastrophe. And the question is whether what he just described was worth, you know, the eggs that were cracked to make that omelet. And, you know, my bias is that it wasn't. So, you know, we just need to see it from various sides. All right. Well, I think we have exhausted that theme uh, for the current conversation. Anything else you want to talk about? What are you, what are you writing uh, these days? Um... Truth to tell, Glenn, we might have to edit here. Um, I am revising my book, Pronoun Trouble, for publication. Every chapter is a pronoun. And um, I want it to be a nice, fizzy, yet informative um, linguist read. I didn't want to do, I, I, I say it and I never mean it, but I don't ever want to write a race book again. And so I wanted to write about fun stuff. Um, and that is what I'm writing at this point. And to, to tell you the truth, while I was listening to Shane, I was making some jottings on a piece of paper about what my next Times piece will be because the inspiration for some reason just hit me. And I'm thinking it might be about Fonnie Wallace 
and some other things. Um, oh. Because one must say something, although I think it's going to be about a language issue. But what did you think of her performance? You know, the way she, with the gray goose and the slang and the, you know, the kind of routine that she did on the stand. To be honest with you, I haven't paid that much attention to it. I've caught only the smallest snippets here and there. Uh, and I, I don't know how to account for my lack of interest in that performance. I gathered it was feisty. That's, that's she, what it was. She was combative. I did, I did see it, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. She was combative, you know, giving them as good as she got in terms of uh, interacting with uh, people who were questioning her. The situation is something of a fiasco, it would appear. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, I think I'll stop there. Having learned my lesson from the fall of Minneapolis, <laughs> not to <laughs> get too far out over my skis when I don't have all the facts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it is an a interesting development, though, given... Uh, you know, Trump in court all over the country. And uh, this is an important case of trying to subvert the election in Georgia. And uh, it was a, something of a windfall for him, publicity-wise, that uh, this uh, ethics issue would arise in the ranks of the prosecutors. But um, there's there are a lot of angles. She's a Black woman being persecuted. Uh, she's just trying to live her life. And, you know, so she has a love affair. Everybody's going to make a big deal out of that. Now she's corrupt. And Whatever, you know, they wouldn't be doing that if it was a white man uh, who, you know, et cetera. And see, the thing, with, the thing there is, yes, they would. I mean, I think the issue yeah. here is that Trump has people working for him where they're going to use whatever they can. If it was sure. a white man, they would be using something else. But of course, this it has to be like Claudine Gay. This has to be because she's a black woman. And, you know, the sad thing is that um, she's brilliant at what she does, but I get the feeling that she she's a little sloppy. And based on the news on the interwebs as we record, and maybe this isn't true, I don't want to go out beyond what I know either, but there seems to be mounting evidence that she and the boyfriend just outright, outright lied as to when yeah. their romantic relationship began. There's cell phone records that make it painfully clear. And if that's the case, what a sad ending for her, because that means she's going to be kicked off of the case and possibly even disbarred for outright perjury. I hope she didn't do that. You know, I hope that she wasn't that messy. But well, I guess we'll just have to see. We'll have to see. All right, my friend, I think it's a wrap. Uh, another uh, bi-weekly, Glenn and John. We had uh, Shane. Uh, Hashi. Hashi, thank you very much. Shane Hashi of Minneapolis, Greater Minneapolis on as our guest. We're still talking about the George Floyd, Derek Chauvin, boo-ha-ha. And there was more of that to come. But uh, thanks, John. Thanks for uh, sharing a Saturday with me. Thank you, Glenn.